0: Today at Reader's Corner, Ryan Pilgrim, author of Pushed Out, Contested Development and Rural Gentrification in the U.S. West. I'm Bob Kustra. Welcome to Reader's Corner. What happens to rural communities when their traditional economic base collapses? When new money comes in? Who gets left behind and who takes their place? In her book, Pushed Out, Contested Development and Rural Gentrification in the U.S. West, Sociologist and Idaho native Ryan Pilgrim offers a rich portrait of Dover, Idaho, whose transformation from tribal land to thriving timber mill town to economically depressed small town to trendy second home location over the past four decades embodies the story and challenges of many rural communities. The book explores the structural forces driving rural gentrification and examines how social and environmental inequality are written into these landscapes. Based on in-depth interviews and archival data, Pilgrim grounds this accessible ethnography in a long view of the region that takes account of geological history, settler colonialism, and histories of power and exploitation within capitalism. Ryan Pilgrim is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Idaho. She received her PhD from the University of Oregon, and she spent her youth in Dover, Idaho. Ryan Pilgrim, welcome to Reader's Corner.
1: Wow, that is quite the introduction. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, let's start Let's start with this beginning. Uh, Dover, Idaho, tell us about your upbringing and tell us about uh, what Dover, Idaho looked like back then.
1: Well, i like to say I have insider-outsider status because I, I actually grew up in uh, Montana and moved to Dover or the kind of a no-man's land between Dover and Sandpoint on Chuck Slough Um, in the early 90s and rode the Dover school bus. So spent a lot of time with the kids in Dover. Um, And when I was growing up there, the mill had closed down. And so there were just piles of sawdust left behind. There was a big sandy beach that was sort of accessible. um, If you went over this berm that you said no trespassing and just spent lots and lots of hours on that beach. And then there's a beautiful bluff that overlooks the beach. That you could, you know, build forts or play kind of games of tag and hide and seek, that kind of stuff, and jump off the rocks on the bluff into the lake. Just this it was very picturesque, but it was also um, kind of an industrial wasteland with just these giant piles of sawdust that we had been. were so tempting to want to play on, but we knew that if you fell into them, you could suffocate and die. So, you know, there was a lot of <laughs> pressure to not go play on the sawdust piles. Yeah, so that's what Dover looked like when I arrived there and that's what it looked like when I left uh, to go to college.
0: So you open up your book uh, with something about the Dover girls. Mm -hmm. Uh, How how do the Dover girls typify the old Dover?
1: Oh, I think they typify old Dover in the sense of the, the intense bonds that they have with each other and the importance of those bonds to communities, particularly that were kind of came up around intensive, Um, extractive industries like mills, right? So you have these small towns where you have a lot in common, where you are mostly of the same social class, the same kind of background and get to form these intense friendships that see you through all sorts of challenges in your life. And not only that, these bonds mean that you become family with people. So um, in the case of the Dover girls, people's children were married to each other or people were married to each other's brothers so bonds of friendship, but also bonds of family and their neighbors. And I think that kind of typifies what was meaningful to them about their community was that sense of shared identity and also that people had your back. When you were in crisis, someone always had your back and you would always have someone else's back.
0: And, and I didn't say it, but, but I guess we should explain for our listeners that the Dover girls are a group of women who meet weekly and, and do good things for the community in one mm-hmm. way or another. Is that correct?
1: They typify, I would say, the sort of, some of this language is a little, I try to complicate it and problematize it a little bit in the book, but I think they, they might be best typified as sort of the old timers in the community mm-hmm. who have very deep roots there.
0: And you you mentioned some of the things you did as a kid, parts of the community, the land that you had access to, um, Let's expand on that a bit, going beyond you as a youngster in the community and just talk about what the people had access to. For example, uh, you've got so much water nearby with Lake Ponderé, people liked the boat. And I'm sure many of the old Doverites liked to fish, probably for the express purpose of bringing the fish home to eat uh, Mm -hmm. in those days days anyway. And uh, they could take their boat down there, and maybe you could explain how it worked for them then and how it works for them now.
1: You are obviously a close reader because I think this is one of the important kind of these like moments where people experience change and it's painful and it typifies, I think, these broader changes that are happening. So Dover was established in about 1922. Um, There had been a mill there before, uh, but it wasn't called Dover. It was called Welty. So 1922, this mill comes in and a lot of the people who live in Dover had been in Dover and their families had been there since that mill started. And so they had the mill sat along the shores of the Pondere River. There's a kind of a big Y in the river at that place and so the lake's kind of on one side of town and the river forms on the other side. And they the mill owner used part of the land for the mill, but it was really kind of a small it was 300 acres. and The mill, maybe I'm estimating here, sat on 50 of those acres. And the rest of that land was open to the community. And they were sort of encouraged to to use that land. So there was a baseball diamond, the beach, and the bluff. Those were all very much public areas. And the community um, believed that the, the mill owner, A.C. White, when he started the mill in 1922, actually gave the beach to the people um, to perform baptisms. So they also would go down and launch boats into the river to go fishing and for recreation, mostly for fishing, although fishing and recreation are kind of tied. So this has been going on in Dover 1922 till like, let's say around the year 2000 um, when the development gets put in. And I think this is an important part of the story for me that when the development gets put in, the, they have to do an archaeological examination of the site and find that it's probably been home to winter encampments for the Kalispell people for at least the last 3,000 years, something like that. Um, And that the development wants to put in a giant marina. And that marina is going to bring in like 500 boats, which is going to create a lot of wave action along the shores of the lake and the river, which is going to start unbearing all these artifacts. And so to deal with that, the developer has to put in um, riprap all along the shore of the lake, like big big kind of bricks of rock so that, that those artifacts don't get washed into the lake. But that means that you can no longer kind of drive up to different parts of the lake and back your boat in, right? Because now there's a ledge. um, And the developer, of course, puts in this marina with a boat ramp. The people of Dover believe um, through city count, through in the meetings that they were promised that they would be able to launch their boats and fish off the dock. And once the development gets put in, the old timers are told, no, it's going to cost you $25 every time you want to launch your boat. Um, And so I think it's this, it caused probably as much sadness and frustration and anger as any single event around the development for the old timers was this loss of access to this to boating and fishing, um, without a twenty five dollar fee or having to drive all the way into town and launch your boat there. You know, you can't use your four wheeler anymore to launch your boat or kind of just walk your boat down there. And you know, it's interesting all the pieces that go into why that's so. And part of that is, you know, just the developer deciding to charge a fee, but also the steps that are put in place to try to protect the land and the ways that those end up kind of impacting local or people who've been there a long time, Um, maybe not, probably not intentionally, right? But these things feel, so I talk in the book about how sometimes environmental policy doesn't feel like it's very understanding of kind of working class people's lives and identities, and I think this is one of those perfect examples, like, yes, you can build a giant marina, and yes, you can put a, these things in there, and now we're going to have to fix the uh, lake shore to keep it protected. And the people who end up, that impacts really are the like the old timers in this community who can no longer launch their boats um, from this place they've launched them. And they can see the water, right? They can see this boat launch, they can see the water, but they just don't have access to it anymore.
0: You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is Ryan Pilgrim, author of Pushed Out, Contested Development and Rural Gentrification in the U.S. West. So I'd like to think that your book has a beginning, a middle, and an end, and I want to get to the middle part. But before we gloss over the Kalispell, I wonder if you could share with us what happens to the Kalispell, how the railroads change things for them. And then, of course, that brings generations of white settlers. I guess those are the people who wind up working at the mill but uh, mm-hmm. share with us share with us how this works.
1: Yeah, I so the beginning of the book I try to offer what happens to indigenous people, particularly the Kalispell people who use the Ponderay watershed as their homeland for the last at least 12,000 years. The archaeological evidence is 12,000 years the Kalispel people since say since time immemorial. Um so the Kalispell people have used this watershed for, you know, probably 500 g- generations and when um First, it's missionaries or Jesuit priests come into the region for fur trading. You know, they, are, they encounter these trees that the Jesuits are riding are twice as big as trees they've ever seen. And, you know, of course, this is what makes this area so ripe for extractive logging is these huge trees. And one of the things I've tried to point out in the book is that these ecosystems, the way that these forests looked when white settlers arrived, when these Jesuit priests arrived, are because of the relationship, because of the, the care of the Kalispell people to work in this ecosystem. So one of the things that I thought I interviewed the, Kalis, the cultural resource manager for the Kalispell tribe a couple times and then did a lot of you know secondary research on this. But one of the things that I found really fascinating that the cultural resource manager told me was that the Kalispell people were very conscientious about Um, population size, right? Managing their populations through limiting births through certain practices they used around spacing their children so that the population was relatively stable for thousands of years. And with the advent of the railroads, we see what happens to all Indigenous people in the United States, which is displacement from their traditional homelands onto reservations, for the Kalispell people, their their communities, there were different bands of Kalispell people, the upper and lower band, and you just ended up on a reservation wherever you happened to be when the military came through, when the cavalry came through. So, for one band of the Kalispell people, they happened to be in um, western Montana, and they were um, loc- They were forcibly relocated to the Flathead Reservation. So they and are called the Ponderay tribe there. Um, The rest of the tribe was mostly located in Usk, Washington um, on the reservation there. So I I do think it's really telling that the Kalispell people who occupied most of what would be considered North Idaho don't have reservations in Idaho. So that's, I think, a really important part of the story. And I try to start it there, right? So like authors don't get to pick the title of their book. And I was really kind of uncomfortable with the title pushed out because I was like, well, this suggests that like it's pushing out one group of people, but this other group of people was was forcibly pushed out in a much like more aggressive and you know I think ninety percent of the Kalispell people died in about a hundred year period right that's That's a tragedy that we need to give voice to and help and use to contextualize people's i think experience of the world. Um, So, yeah, that's the short version that I use in the book to talk about the Kalispell, people and their role in this area and kind of the importance of this area to them.
0: So you mentioned uh, the development itself, uh, which you call Mill Lake. And I'm a little confused. This, again, now is the new Dover. So Mm -hmm. the the old Dover, you've described it as growing up and, and how the Dover girls look upon it. Uh, but now we're going to talk about the new Dover for a minute, just so our listeners understand what we're doing here. And um, when I went on Zillow to look up Dover, Idaho, and try to find Mill Lake, all I could find was Mill Lake, Wisconsin. But oh, I, found
1: well <laughs> I found
0: Dover Bay. I found uh, Dover Bay. Did you use a pseudonym? And, and what's the deal there? Is this a legal thing What your publisher wants you to do?
1: No, I mean, it was, it's pretty typical in my, I'm a sociologist. It's actually, it's pretty unusual to write something in sociology where you even name what community you're researching uh-huh. um, because we have a professional obligation to provide our informants um, pseudonyms and anonymity or confidentiality. Um, and so it's just standard practice. So to buck that practice was is kind of unconventional. So I, was able to, my editor agreed that, that to name the community was really important because it was so specific to this, to place, right? If you're telling a story specific to place, then you need to be able to name that place. Um, but I was less able to convince them that I should be able to name, oh, individual people in that process. And that because the development is connected to people, it was, you know, I went ahead and used a pseudonym there too. And I think part of that for me is kind of also this idea that this is a very specific story about place, but I hope people will read it and not think, wow, dope, something weird happened in Dover, Idaho, and understand it as a case study that helps explain maybe what they're seeing in their own communities, and so in that way, I think those particulars about, you know, what specifically this place is called or that place is called is maybe less important than trying to understand, okay, well, here are the structural things that are happening. And if I understand those structures, then I can take that map that is provided, I hope, in the book, this kind of economic and historical map, and pick it up and like lay it over your own community and see what's happening and and maybe kind of decide how what levers you might want to pull to decide what changes you want in your community.
0: Mm -hmm. So I'm saving a few questions specifically about what happens to the old Dover and how okay. uh, it disappears. And, and so before we get to that, I'm going to do something rather odd here. Uh, pretend for a moment that you're not the sociologist, but you're a realtor from Dover in Seattle talking to a group of people who you're trying to entice to buy land in Dover Bay. How, you, you, already, you mentioned there's a marina there, but just step back for a minute and help us understand what the new Dover looks like to these folks who come in. I think you call it amenity migration, uh, which is very common.
1: What a great way of framing that question! I, you know, I'm, my real job is that I teach, and so I'm always trying to think like how do I get <laughs> to engage with things, right? And I think I'm like, oh, I might have to steal that for <laughs> a way to ask <laughs> to think about this. So, new Dover takes the charm of rural communities and translates it into upscale amenities. So we have housing at every level from cottages and condominiums to upscale waterfront homes, miles of paved walking trail, a dog park, beaches, restaurants, pools, fitness clubs, bridges walking across wetlands where you get to see moose playing in the water, eagles soaring overhead, Everything you imagine when you think of a rural community, but all the amenities you expect from the city.
0: And this is a suburb of Sandpoint, I guess, at one point you may have indicated.
1: The people of Dover would be really salty if I said yes. Um, <laughs> but it, it's two miles from Sandpoint. It's a very easy drive from Sandpoint to to Dover.
0: Yeah. I only bring that up because I know our listeners all over Idaho know about Sandpoint. Uh, I haven't found anybody who knows about Dover yet, but I'm working on it.
1: Yeah, it's essentially Sandpoint. I mean, it's suburbs, probably not quite the right term, but it's a a small town right on the edge of Sandpoint.
0: You're listening to Ryan Pilgrim. She's the author of Pushed Out, Contested Development and Rural Gentrification in the U.S. West. So let's talk now about uh, the middle of your book, I guess is one way to put it what happens. The demise of the lumber mill really tells the story of a changing American West. And the one number that I remember distinctly from your book is that after World War II, there were in the neighborhood of 311 lumber mills in Idaho. And in 2011, you could count 27 of them. Uh, Obviously, one of the communities that you could count among the 311 and not the 27 is the Dover Mill. Maybe you could start by helping us understand how intricately linked the lumber mill, its owner in particular, was to the community when it comes to things like water. Uh, You you spend some time in your book talking about the sewer system because that also was an issue, but I'm not so sure uh, you can explain that. I'm not so sure that was a company problem as much as it was a community problem. Um, Mm -hmm. But please, if you will help us understand a somewhat different relationship that an industry has to a community in the timber economy, uh, very different than you might find in Boise, Idaho, with Micron technology, for example, uh, where this kind of relationship you're about to describe wouldn't exist.
1: Yeah, I'm having so much fun doing this interview because you've read the book. (laughs) It's like we can get into the weeds (laughs) on the things that I think are really pivotal to the story. And I think this is one of the most important aspects of it. So when the mill in Dover is built, like many mill communities, they need people to work in those mills because that's how you create profit, right? You have to actually turn the trees into lumber that can go on the trains and go back to the East Coast for the most part. Um, And so you have to entice people to stay in your community. And one of the things people really like is water, running water. So the city or the mill owner, when he built Dover, built water for the community. Now, this is not always as like benevolent as it sounds. Mills need water to operate as well. So as long as you're putting in a water system for your mill to operate, put it in for your community. So the community of Dover consisted of um, mill homes that were provided by the mill owner. It was not a company town, just to be clear, um, but homes that were provided by the owner that people could buy, um, a community hall, a church, and then the mill. And the mill owner provided the water. At the time, there was a big tank up on the bluff to provide water pressure. And then the water, the pipes actually were all made of wood, which was kind of typical of the time. So the community of Dover's water is provided by the mill. And the mill owner provides water for decades to the community. So starting in the 1920s, in the 1950s, they rebuild the water tank up there. Um, when the mill is sold, I'm trying to get the numbers correct in my head here. When the mill is sold to a new mill owner in the 1970s, that owner tells the community that the purchase of water was incidental to their purchase, and they're no longer going to provide water to the community, which is a huge problem. This is the only way the community can get water. And so the local, the people of Dover sort of fight back. They find some stipulation in state law that says once an entity provides water to a community, they cannot revoke that unless the people quit paying their bills. So it's fascinating when I'm doing interviews in Old Dover, some people could pull out their water bills from like the ni- mid 1970s and their canceled checks to prove that they had been paying for their water. And so that kind of that fight kind of dies down for about 10 years until a developer purchases the land who says that we will keep providing water, but we will not upgrade anything. So, right, these are wooden pipes that were developed or were put in in the 1920s. And at that point, the water, the community's water is so bad that they are under a boil, they are put under a boil order and expected to keep this water system essentially running um, on their own. So they do a couple things at this point. They incorporate to become an actual city so that they can start applying for grants for low income communities to, to fix their water system. Their water system uses a pump to draw water out of the lake. Even when it's working perfectly, the water pressure is so low that they sometimes have trouble, their toilets have trouble filling, but every time the power goes out and the power goes out a lot in North Idaho because of the heavy snows and things, every time the power goes out, um, the pump goes off, the pump room floods, And the entire pump room has to be bailed out and the pump restarted every time the power goes out. So there are the communities often without any water for days at a time. And for six years, it's left without water that you can drink without boiling it. So, you know, that's a long time to be under a boil order. Uh, And so, you know, one of the arguments in the book is sort of this economic argument that when communities undergo these processes, I call it like this destruction, right? Of like access to water, there are issues with their sewer system, there are issues with the bridge in the community that when they're under, when you're under all these these destructive sort of forces, um, it makes you very, very vulnerable to being redeveloped because people can profit kind of off that, that suffering. That's my long answer to that.
0: <laughs> Does, doesn't the ownership of this lumber mill and the property later on, doesn't that turn over quite a bit
1: it turns years? over so much and that was one of the reasons that i ended up giving things pseudonyms too because during this period it was never clear to me because i went through all, all the archival records and tried to i mean i spent just months years really going through these archival records yeah there are places sometimes there's a, it's called shamrock development some it's called dover development and so yeah like this is the, the little town or the development is dover bay development but I didn't want people to get confused between all the different developments that are and people that are buying it and some of the people that I think they're tra- it's trading hands, but it's the, maybe it's the companies changing names, but the individuals who own it aren't changing. It was a giant web of very old papers that really seemed not to lead anywhere clear. <laughs> so, you know, one of the things I tried to do in the book is to, after having a number of people read it, is trying to, you know, what's the important part of the story? You know, when you're the, the researcher and you're trying to figure out all these different threads, like why in the newspaper in 1984 are they using this term? And but in 1985, they're using the old term, you know, that like maybe that's really not the story. And I can step back and try and, you know, simplify that part of the story for readers, which is what I try to do.
0: Well, you did an excellent job of that. And we're going to tell the whole story here at Reader's Corner, but we're going to divide it up into this half hour. And then we're going to bring you back for another half hour. And maybe the way to close out this particular segment of the interview is to just have you comment on how everything changes in 1992 when fire occurs.
1: Yeah, so the mill in Dover had closed down in 1989, about six months after it unionized. And then it burns down in 1992, Um, there's a few things about that. I just think are sort of ironic, tragic. One is that because the city of Dover had gotten those grants and rebuilt their water system, the water system had just been turned on right before the mill burned down. Um, and so, but the fire department didn't know which water system to hook into. So they arrive in Dover, this mill is engulfed in flames. They're trying to put the fire out. There's no water in the old mill water system. Um, so they have to hook up to the city's new system and draw water out of the lake to fight this fire. There are flames, um, embers going onto people's roofs. The people don't have any water pressure because the fire department's using it to fight the fire. Um, so people like are trying to fight the fire in the community, which is what they do, and they get it out. Uh, the fire was started in the mill while salvage crews were working to try and take all the metal out to sell um, so the land can maybe be reused. And there's a lot of parts in the book where I really felt like, am I Nancy Drew or am I a sociologist? And this was one of those <laughs> moments because um, the fire started about three days after someone in the community called the EPA on um, the group who was salvaging and pointing out some of the environmental issues that maybe were being overlooked in the salvage operation, like that the buildings were full of asbestos and that there were some buried fuel tanks So, yeah, it was I mean, the newspaper, I think Dave Gunter is the one who had been the newspaper reporter that had reported on all these, And he did a really, really good job, I think, of kind of like laying out all these contradictory things that are happening there. You know, like here's this um, mill that's burning down that is really an eyesore now for whoever has bought this property and wants to develop it. And the people of Dover are asking, you know, are you going to save some of these mill buildings? They're historic. You know, we think that they should be saved as part of the to save the character of our community. And like, oh, yeah, these buildings aren't going anywhere. And then, you know, then someone calls the EPA on them. And then the next thing you know, um, they've gone up in flames because someone's blowtorch during the salvage operation, I believe, like catches some of the wood on fire. And it just, you know, it's explodes. It's it's a wooden structure. Um, and it was a super windy day uh, in the spring that they were working on it, and and that was the end of the mill. So, like the whole controversy about what mill buildings are going to be salvaged if something gets put in there, that question kind of becomes moot <laughs> at that point.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, so Nancy Drew, we really never will know whether there is a slight possibility that somebody set this thing on fire. Huh?
1: Well, I mean, we know someone set it on fire, but we just don't
0: know. Like... Or accidentally or on purpose, I guess is where yeah, i going with Yeah. That. Well, look, we're, we're uh, delighted to have you at Reader's Corner, and we're so delighted that we're going to turn our conversation into two parts. So I want to assure our readers that we'll be back next week with the second edition of this conversation when it really gets interesting, because now we're going to get into the underlying story of what happens when a lumber mill dies and what comes next and why does it die and why are jobs lost? Uh, There are so many great answers that Ryan Pilgrim has to that question. We'll save that for next week. Thanks for joining us today at Reader's Corner, Ryan. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Kustra. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner.
1: This is my voice. It can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on the Black
0: experience. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts.